0: Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. Today is Friday, April 14th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going today?
1: Matt, a., it's going pretty great. I am enjoying these record high temps. Uh, what a weekend we have ahead of us here.
0: I think we said this last year when there was like one random weekend that got just like absurdly hot. But there a couple like few days of sprinkled in, ooh, this feels like a, a cooler summer day instead of a warm spring day. really nice. When it becomes part of a trend, that's where it's concerning.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, this is fantastic, but when does it become just like over the top in terms of in terms of heat and uh, yeah, and just record highs too? I mean, it's like we're we're literally getting there. We're literally getting to record highs. So
0: Yeah, and I think what we're alluding to is like a big difference between weather and climate. Like hot weather is not a big deal. A hotter climate is a big deal. You know, those random like one, two days, yeah. Not really cause for alarm. It's just, ooh, it's hot. Um, once it's record high weeks, months, years, that's where it's a problem. And uh yeah, we're seeing that year after year, which
1: is not fun. Definitely not. Definitely not. But you know what? We got a lot of fun for you in store in this episode. So stay tuned. We
0: absolutely do. And before we get into that fun, um, breaking news, the Colorado River is shrinking. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago at this point. The White House is proposing cutting water allotments to the states that depend on it. So um, that is breaking as we are recording. We will talk about that on next week's show.
1: Time for a quick hits for the week, and the first one is by Emma Newberger of CNBC, and she writes, Biden EPA cracks down on mercury pollution from power plants.
0: Last week, the EPA announced the limits on several toxic air pollutants emitted by power plants would be strengthened, including the limit on mercury. Mercury impairs brain development of children and can cause cardiovascular disease in adults, according to this article. Earlier this year, the Biden administration restored the Obama-era regulation that controls mercury. So now the EPA is actually able to move forward to enforce these stricter measures.
1: EPA officials said the new limits would reduce emissions of mercury and fine particulate matter, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxides, and carbon dioxide as well, across the U.S. This also accelerates the country's transition away from coal-burning plants. The new rule
0: would aim to reduce remaining mercury emissions by 70% while curbing other non-mercury metal pollution such as nickel, arsenic, and lead. Officials also added that these limits won't be costly for the power plants because of new advanced control technologies that can actually monitor and control the emissions. When we're talking about costs, the estimated health benefits of this proposal are between two point four dollars to $3 billion. That's billion with a B. Between 2028 and 2037,
1: it's only gonna cost the industry between 230 and 330 million. The EPA is accepting public comment on the rule for 60 days after publication in the Federal Register.
0: Yeah, if you're excited about this, definitely write to the EPA because look, anytime we bring up environmental news topics, there's gonna be people who are strictly concerned with costs. They're not gonna care about that $2.4 to $3 billion cost savings in public health benefits. What they're going to care about is, ooh, this is going to cost the industry two hundred thirty to three hundred thirty million dollars. For me, this is a no. So, look, if we like this rule, which I do, let's write to the EPA. You know, they are serving us; they work for us. So, it's it's important to also write when you support things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I don't really have anything to add. Um, besides, get on your policymakers, get on your your politicians, and <laughs> and hound uh, them. Is is the is the one thing.
0: Yeah. Re- really about everything.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not just about this.
0: So it's also cool to bring this up because this is really important for the environment. This is really important for public health, but it's also important to something we've talked about a bunch of times on the show before, environmental justice, where the communities that are the most impacted by power plant emissions are often communities of color, poor communities. And this is one of those rulings that helps even the playing field a little bit. You know, it's it's going to bring those communities up without really harming anyone else at all, except if you're worried about that two hundred thirty million dollars for the industry. But even still, if that's your main concern, how much of that money is recouped by not having to pay people to be sick as often if we're saving almost three billion dollars in health savings?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree people's health and the health of this country is way more important.
0: Absolutely. But look, even if you are only concerned with the bottom line, save us money. People aren't going to get sick as often. So this is just one of those checks off every box, win, win, wins. Exactly.
1: Yep. All right. The next story is from Electric where Jameson Dow writes new EPA rules will upend industry as automakers EV plans are too low. More news
0: for the EPA's big week. New rules are set to increase electric vehicle market share to 60% in the United States by 2030 and 67% by 2032. President Biden had previously announced a commitment of 50% of new cars sold in the U.S. being electric by 2050, but the automaker industry is behind where they would need to be in order to hit that number. This rule incentivizes car makers to reach that goal by setting emission limits far lower than they are today. EVs, of course, do
1: not create emissions while driving. The rules would bring federal guidelines closer to the guidelines in California, but California will still have stricter laws. The state law calls for 68% electric vehicles by 2030 and 82% by 2032. Some speculate that the auto industry could lobby to ask the EPA to strengthen the federal rules so that there's one standard to follow nationwide and not just one standard for California and then one for the other states.
0: Yeah, I I would be surprised if that's the case. The article brings it up, but the point is more that it's possible. Um, The reason I say I would be surprised is because it's going to be harder to produce cars that are that efficient unless you are focused only on electric vehicles. Um, If that's the case, great, all for it. But I I think that it's going to be difficult for automakers to do that. So I, I would be surprised if they... If automakers were the ones that were lobbying to say, no, strengthen the regulations. The, the point is that it's also difficult to say we can make all of these cars to sell in 49 states, but California's cars need to be better. You know, it might be mm-hmm. easier, more efficient, more cost friendly for them to just have one make and model that they put out for all 50 states. So we'll see. You know, the industry has supported stronger emission standards recently. And the U.S. general public supports cars being 100% electric by 2030. There was a a poll that they posted in this article that said 55% of people polled did support that measure. So, you know, anything's possible. (laughs) But yeah, this would be an exciting rule that would benefit public health, the environment, and ultimately drive down the cost of electric vehicles with more and more being produced.
1: Yeah, and with the infrastructure law helping create more charging stations in rural areas and on highways as well, EVs will be a lot more favorable than they were, you know, let's say 10 years ago. Yeah. And that's a really good point because there are so many people that,
0: you know, we've, we've all heard somebody say, oh, I would love to get an electric vehicle, but I don't know what I would do if I if it wasn't fully charged. That was kind of the big critique. Yeah. Even as recent as five years ago. But now we're seeing more and more charging stations pop up at malls, on highways, at libraries, you know, all these public places, supermarkets that people go to frequently and you can charge it there or you could charge it at home. And I remember we did a story, might've been late last year, early this year, where you had brought up that like 90% of trips that people make can be handled within one charge. Yeah. If the rate is 450 miles and and even let's shoot low, let's say 350 miles per charge, how
1: often are you driving more than that in one sitting? (laughs) Exactly. Like, and- I think the biggest thing is like people need that security. Like, mm-hmm. even though they're not going to be making that trip, you know, like, like, like you just said, 90% of the time, they just want the security of being able to, God forbid something happens or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, w- having those, having the infrastructure in place and having those charging ports in a bunch of different places will help that security get stronger and help people feel more comfortable, I think, with, with taking a, you know, that that leap to, to an EV. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a really good point. Security. It's, it's the same reason, like there are a lot of times if I'm going out for dinner and then maybe going out for drinks after, if my phone's at 80% and I'm leaving in 30 minutes, I plug it in. Is it ever going to drop 80% while I'm like out with friends, not looking at it? No, of course not. But I like to just get as much out of it as I can. So yeah, really good point. And something else I'd like to bring up, batteries are getting better. Yeah. EVs are getting more efficient. So by the time we're seeing the market share hit this number, we're going to have more chargers, like we just said. But also, in theory, you should have to charge less. You should be able to charge quicker. Everything about this industry is going to look a little bit different in 2030. So, you know, it's not the same EVs we're looking at today. And even if it was, they're so much better than they were a decade ago.
1: Yeah. Oh, no question.
0: So just a heads up for the listeners, we are recording on Tuesday this week, so the guidance for this ruling actually might have come out after we recorded. We will keep an eye on it when the rules are formally announced, if they're formally announced, and uh, yeah, we will do a follow-up story on that if needed.
1: Yeah, for sure. All right, let's get into our next one here, and it is titled Climate Change Adding 50 Homers a Year in the MLB, Study Says, by Seth Bornstein of the Associated Press. I
0: love this story and like not in a climate change is cool kind of way, but in a, this is so interesting and so topical with baseball starting last week and a week before. Yeah. Not a, not a huge baseball fan. I I enjoy going to a game, but I think it was last week.
1: It was two, yeah, it was like two weeks ago at this point. Two
0: weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is a, a really, really cool story to discuss as you know, opening day was this month. So hotter, Thinner air, as a result of climate change, is allowing baseball to travel further off the bat since 2010. Scientists from Dartmouth College analyzed 100,000 Major League games and more than 200,000 balls put into play over the last decade and compared those across weather conditions, stadiums, and other factors.
1: The article explains this by saying when air heats up, molecules move faster and away from each other, so the air is less dense and the balls can fly through it with less resistance. This has resulted in a 1% increase in home run likelihood with every 1 degree Fahrenheit of air warming. This is also only 1% of the home runs hit across baseball. So changes the MLB has made to the ball, including the size of the stitches, have had more of an impact on number of homers hit.
0: An executive for the Philadelphia Phillies, Dave Dombrowski, said that this lines up with what baseball teams have been seeing. When it's warmer, the ball travels more, and they now have scientific evidence to back that up. Home of the Chicago Cubs, Wrigley Field has the most warming homer-friendly confines. Wrigley also still hosts a lot of day games, as the article points out, so it's going to be warmer during the day. That's why you're going to see more home runs there. Mm -hmm. For Tampa's Tropicana Field, home of the Rays, there was no major difference from heat. The Trap is also the only full-time domed stadium in Major League Baseball, so you shouldn't see much of an impact there, if at all.
1: Yeah. The average U.S. temperature in June, July, and August has increased by more than 2 degrees or 1.1 degrees Celsius in the last 40 years, according to NOAA. In the worst climate models, there would be about 192 more home runs hit per year by 2050 and 467 by 2100. In climate models closer to the path we're currently on, we're looking at 155 extra homers per year by 2050.
0: Lead author of this study, Chris Callahan, hinted that we would probably not see these numbers in reality because many teams would have to turn to dome stadiums if the planet continued to warm that much. He said, The fact that we'll get to fewer baseball games played in open air is not a civilization-ending crisis, but it's another sign of the way that we have reshaped our lives Due to our greenhouse gas emissions,
1: yeah, that's such a good point, and probably something that we don't think about at all. But like, even as something as simple as that, like going to a baseball game, going to an outdoor game, yeah, where you're, you know, in the sun, uh, you're enjoying a nice whatever—hot dog, chicken tenders, just fries, whatever. Yeah, it's it's different, you know. It's it is different to to feel that open air and like. I've been to like, I feel like one dome game in my life and it was not the same. Like, There's no question. It's not the same, especially if you don't have like natural sunlight coming in. I know like the Viking stadium. I think the Raiders do Raiders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's really cool. That's a great implementation, but still it's not going to be the same. It's not the same.
0: Yeah. And and, you know, I, I mentioned this at the top. I'm not a huge baseball guy. Basketball and football are my favorite sports to watch. Love going to games. But if I was going to pick any game, you know, excluding my favorite teams in each sport, because that would obviously be the game I would pick. If I had to pick a random game to go to, it's probably baseball because there's nothing better than the summer with your buddies, you know, grabbing food that's way too bad for you, having a couple ice cold. We don't have any beer sponsors here, so Miller High Life is my favorite. So a couple (laughs) of those, like it's just there's nothing better. And to think that, like you said, a dome stadium, just, it doesn't feel the same. You don't have that sun beating on you. You don't have the sweat dripping down your hat that you wore to the game. Like, right. It's fun in that it's fun to watch the sport, but I think baseball's aura would really be hurt by moving to dome stadiums. And that's a, a realistic possibility as the climate continues to
1: warm. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point.
0: Something I don't want to get into too much, but I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up. I feel like baseball is generally more right-leaning in the players. So if you're a pitcher in the major leagues and you are concerned about your ERA, you should be reevaluating which party cares about climate change.
1: <laughs> That's facts. That's straight-up facts. <laughs> Scientifically proven. Ask Dartmouth. Yeah, that was advanced analytics with the planet today. <laughs> nice. All right, we're going to take a quick
0: break. When we get back, we got two more quick hits for you.
1: Hi, my name's Alfred Delia.
0: At home, they call me Big Al, and I hit dingers. 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 Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT.
1: Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And next up mass Yellowstone bison hunt kills more than 1000 by Jim Robbins of Yahoo news.
0: This is a sad story that unfortunately comes as a result of a harsh winter in Yellowstone national park this year, where large portions of the park's bison herd moved to lower elevation and out of the park to find food and warmer weather. As a result, State and federal officials sanctioned hunting of the animals and culled roughly 1,500 of the 6,000-member herd.
1: Killing these bison was approved because 60% of the animals carry a disease that can infect cattle and cause cows to abort their calves. Bison are a tourist attraction and are an important part of Native American culture. So this hunt specifically was conducted mainly by eight indigenous tribes. The hunt has also caused more criticism than previous hunts because it resulted in 1,530 being removed from Yellowstone.
0: Hundreds more were sent out of the park to either slaughterhouses or to a quarantine site until they're ruled healthy. And once that happens, they'll be sent to homes on Native American lands. Another 800 bison have been captured to protect them from being hunted. But the, the thing that's interesting here is The laws state that once a bison leaves Yellowstone, it instantly becomes the responsibility of the state.
1: Yeah, part of the reason this hunt was so large in number is because the last three years saw very light bison migration. This was one of the first major migrations in a while. Park managers are now making sure that the bison population remains above 3,500 to maintain genetic diversity. With a new group of calves this spring, the population should be around 5,000 individuals. Yeah, so long story short, as long as this all goes according to plan,
0: there's more than enough to maintain genetic diversity and help repopulate the bison population in in a healthy manner. Um, This is just a tough one because, you know, you're seeing they're encroaching on livestock and carrying a disease. And this is where that human nature conflict that we talk about five stories a week Mm -hmm. it it just it shows up in in various different ways every time um this article points out how some of the critics of the hunt note that there's never been an outbreak of brucellosis infection among montana's roughly two million cattle that could be traced to yellowstone bison if cattle were to become infected with the highly contagious brucella abortus bacteria It would result in a lockdown of the animal basically because the disease passes mostly through birth of calves can also spread from animals to people mostly through consumption of raw dairy but it has the potential to become airborne even if that's unlikely
1: vaccines against brucellosis are hard to distribute and aren't efficient enough to safely protect the park's bison even if they were vaccinated Elk are also infected with this bacteria and can reinfect an immunized bison. So basically, something they had to do, as unfortunate as as it sounds and as unfortunate as it is, mm-hmm. it's to protect, you know, the rest of the bison and keep those populations high and um, healthy. Yeah,
0: and, and you know, it, it's a really good point that you bring up that it's unfortunately necessary. Wildlife management is so difficult, especially when you see a species like this where there used to be, I think, 1.8 million bison in the U.S. back at at the turn of the century in 1900. And I'm sorry, I said 1900 is 1800. Um, American colonialism, we decided we were going to keep expanding west. And there were these people that were different from us, the Native Americans. And we found that this was extremely important to them and decided to assert dominance by hunting bison for sport. Yeah. You know, there's there's plenty of pictures documenting hundreds or thousands of bison skulls just being piled up like they weren't being used for anything. They were just us showing what we could do. Yeah, exactly. So for an animal like that, that means so much to this country and to the people who were here before this country. I, I think it's, you know, I. I guess, like American nature to root for it. We want to see the bison succeed. It's our national mammal as of, I think, six years ago, seven years ago now. So we want to see the bison population do well. So when we see 1,500 bison removed from the park, 1,000 killed, it's upsetting, it's jarring, it's disappointing, but it's important to remember that this is important for long-term survival of of the calves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to put the mass over the, a few. Yeah, a hundred percent. So this article
0: goes on to talk more about the relationship between bison and native Americans. And I would definitely recommend checking it out. It's super interesting. It's also important to note that interior secretary Deb Holland is the first native American to serve in a presidential cabinet. And she recently announced $25 million to help conserve and restore the bison herds across the American West. So something I am looking forward to hearing is What's coming out of the Bronx Zoo over in New York, where, you know, it was founded as the American Bison Society turned into to the Wildlife Conservation Society. That organization has released genetically pure bison into the wild starting right after I worked there. So it must have started back in 2017 now. You know, they've been breeding these genetically pure bison and releasing them into the wild. So those are, going to be amazing for, for like bolstering genetic diversity and not interacting with cattle as much. So yeah, you know, this is a tough story, but all that's to say, not all hope is lost. We're not going to have almost 2 million bison the way we were, but I think the bison is so deeply loved and cared for that. I don't think we're going to lose them.
1: Yeah. Agreed. There's they're, they're in good hands. Uh, The people that are in charge of wildlife conservation, I give you all the credit in the world. It's not easy work, uh, you know, sending this many bison to be basically killed. Mm-hmm. Can't imagine that's an easy decision. So, all right. Our last quick hit of the week is by Sumaya Carlamangia and Sean Hubler. And they write, To Larry Lake was drained off the map. Nature would like a word. For the New York Times.
0: So a few episodes ago, we talked about how California's drought was temporarily fixed by a very wet winter, but it could lead to some major problems for the state's environment with high flood risk. I remember the, the tagline was water woes remain. Yes. So here is one of the major examples of those water woes located in the Central Valley of California, which used to be the largest body of freshwater west of the Mississippi River. It was dammed and drained to be used as farmland by the mid 20th century, but this year Tulare Lake has resurfaced.
1: In the past three weeks, 30 square miles of farmland has been transformed by the precipitation and rising seas. Kings County's 152,000 residents and $2 billion agriculture industry have all been impacted by what the authors call a slow motion disaster. And if Tulare Lake continues to get wider and deeper, There's an increasing risk that entire crop harvests will be lost and homes and businesses also destroyed.
0: The past three months have seen California hit by atmospheric rivers, which come with heavy rains and floods. This phenomenon has resulted in California's ground becoming saturated, canals overflowing through levees, and the fear that the Sierra Nevada mountain range's snowpack will liquefy with spring heat and lead to more intense
1: flooding. The Tulare Lake could also remain for over two years, according to scientists, which would displace thousands of farmers and cause billions of dollars in economic damage. Several communities have already been evacuated and hundreds of homes and farm buildings have been destroyed. Dairy cattle have been seen running to higher ground in herds of tens of thousands. This article speaks of a local poultry facility that has to figure out whether to move or or slaughter one million chickens.
0: Yeah, the impacts here are tremendous. And it goes to more than just humans. It goes to more than just the homes. And when you think of the farms and think of the crops, you know, there's animals here too. And whatever you want to say about farming, like even if those chickens were going to grow up to turn into food, it still sucks that this is the way that some of them might die. Like this is a, a really difficult thing that we're seeing. The article calls it a rematch between humans and nature with nature determined to win in an era of climate change. Fortunately, that analogy jumps out to me a lot because nature knows the battlefield a lot better than we do. You know, we're going in with a disadvantage. Those dams, those levees that were made by us to prevent flooding, they don't mean as much if the amount of flood water changes. You know, it's, it's like you're practicing to kick a field goal from 40 yards and all of a sudden you go into a game and have to kick a 50 yarder. That's not what you signed up for. Mm-hmm. And it's the same process, but you might not have the leg strength to do it. In this case, it's the same process of, of dams and levees, but we might not have dams and levees that are strong enough to contain this much water. So in this case, the authors write that stormwater runoff has no natural place to drain, and experts say there's no easy way to send the water elsewhere to be used for irrigation.
1: Lake Tulare dates back to the Ice Age, but the landscape is now one of the most heavily engineered ecosystems in the U.S., with dams, farms, and cities built along hundreds of miles of levees and canals. Lake Tulare is basically a 790-square-mile bathtub, which the article points out is the size of four Lake Tahoes. Snowmelt from the Sierra Nevada mountains submerged about 130 square miles of this region in 1983, and it caused $300 million in damage. The water took two years to clear. What we're now seeing is much more than that in a region where the population has doubled.
0: This can also impact our wallets as consumers, even if we're not impacted locally. Because the crops grown here include nuts, tomatoes, and pima cotton. They're already rising in value with inflation, but with lowered supply due to snowmelt-based flooding. This is something that's going to impact the entire world. And I think something that this article does really well is remind readers that there are real people behind these words and behind these numbers. The authors tell first-person stories of people living nearby with water essentially everywhere. So look, i I know that we say this every week to check out the articles if you're curious in this. This is something that'd be really important to to dive into and remember that all of these stories we talk about, whether it's you know tornadoes last week flooding several weeks back, like mm-hmm. every statistic is a person,
1: yeah, absolutely. great point. And we should also bring up the article's silver lining birds that once wintered at Tulare Lake. Are now returning, so the region has seen increased amounts of ibises, blackbirds, and American coots.
0: Yeah, it's it's important to bring up nature's resiliency. Um, Something we talk about with climate change often is like, if we don't solve this, the planet is doomed. Yeah, Uh, in some cases, some species won't survive, but like the planet's going to be fine. It's us that are screwed. You know, this is something we're seeing where people are really heavily impacted by this and birds are, are coming home. So yeah, the planet will be okay. It's, it's us. If we want to continue living on earth happily and comfortably got to fight climate change.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And like, uh, just another example of like, you think something is good. Like we, like California getting so much rain, uh, last month. And then you just, you hear this story and you're like, God, like what, I, like, you just don't know what's what anymore. I don't know. I, like, the extreme weather is just not good no matter what. So,
0: yeah. And climate change is going to make all of those extremes more extreme.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: All right. If you don't have time for anything else, go click on the article and check out the pictures. They were extremely jarring, but really put this whole thing into perspective. But with that, that's it for this episode of The Planet Today. We will be back on Monday for this month's interview with special guest Claire Santa Coloma. Until then, please go give the show a five star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. Nick continues to produce our show and makes all the
1: music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people hear more of your stuff? You can hear more from me at slash budlincape. And that is B U D L Y N C A P E. Go check me out, everybody. Our logo is made by Kaylee Vitz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here
0: on Monday. Peace.